Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. Today, we are continuing our interviews with the Democratic candidates in New York's 10th congressional district. There's no incumbent running. It's a wide open race. It's a crowded and distinguished field of candidates. Uh, you may have heard that uh, there was a lot of drama around redistricting in this cycle that comes every 10 years after the census is taken. There were lawsuits, there were maps thrown out, there were new maps drawn, there was a bifurcated primary. So we had statewide and assembly primaries in June, and now we are going to August for state Senate and U.S. House of Representatives primaries. And in those House races, there is this very interesting an important race in the new 10th congressional district, which spans parts of lower Manhattan, uh, the East and West Villages, the Lower East Side, Chinatown, Tribeca, Battery Park City, the Financial District, and more, and also a big stretch of Brooklyn, including parts of downtown Brooklyn, Gowanus, Park Slope, Sunset Park, Red Hook, Borough Park, and I might have left out a couple of neighborhoods there, but that's the gist of the new 10th congressional District. It's a rarity here that there's no incumbent running, although there is a current member of the House of Representatives running. Mondaire Jones has moved from the Hudson Valley, where he currently represents the 17th district, to move to Brooklyn and run in this race. Very interesting decision that we'll ask him about at some point here on the show. But the field of candidates for this August Democratic primary is large. And as I said, uh, distinguished a number of current and former elected officials, uh, advocates and others. One of those candidates is my guest here today, and that's Joanne Simon. She is the assembly member for the 52nd Assembly District, which is in Brooklyn. She's worked in Albany for a number of years on a variety of issues important to New Yorkers that we'll get into with her and uh, hear about her accomplishments in the state legislature. Her current district overlaps or is, is fully inside the 10th Congressional District and makes up somewhere around 30 percent of this new congressional district. And it is a very politically active and high voter turnout district. Um, my guest here today, Joanne Simon, my conversation with her in just a moment. Uh, as I said, also in the running here in the 10th Congressional District uh, is Representative Mondaire Jones, uh, who has recently moved to Brooklyn. Then we also have former Mayor Bill de Blasio, City Council Member Carlina Rivera, Assemblymember Yuli New, former Congresswoman Liz Holtzman, uh, former Trump impeachment counsel Dan Goldman, and still others. Uh, so it's a crowded field. We've started talking with the candidates here. Uh, on recent episodes of the show, I've spoken with uh, Carlina Rivera and Dan Goldman. We have others who will come join us to tell us about their resumes, their accomplishments, and very importantly, their visions for being a Congress member from this new 10th district and what that would mean and look like. Primary day is Tuesday, August 23rd. If you are a Democratic voter who lives in this district, you are eligible to vote and there's still some time to register or even switch your party affiliation. If you want to look at the boundaries of the new district, we always like to recommend the great redistricting and you New York uh, portal from the CUNY mapping service and our friend Steve Romalewski there. So you can check out the boundaries of the new district. Uh, and as I said, it's not too late to register to vote and get involved here. All right. Assembly member Joanne Simon, thank you for being here. Welcome. How are you? I'm great. Good to hear to speak with you again this morning, Ben. 
Yes, so we're speaking here on the morning of Tuesday, July 12th, uh, and some listeners may know, last night I moderated a candidate forum in the race at a, at a church in downtown Brooklyn, so we, we've we spoken just hours ago in person, uh, and, and it was broadcast over Zoom. Uh, so, so a quick turnaround here for us, but now we get to have a more extended conversation about you and your, your campaign. Um, so, so start us off a little bit with just the, the broad rationale for running for Congress. Why are you doing this? Uh, broadly speaking, what, what brought you into this race? Well, thank you, uh, Ben. Uh, you know, what brought me into this race, I think what brought everybody into this race was the court's ruling that there would be a uh, a, a new congressional district uh, that kind of changed the landscape uh, of the 10th congressional district as well as the 12th in Manhattan. Um, and so when Congressman Nadler made his decision to run in the 12th where he lives, uh, uh, this, this race was uh, made open. So uh, when I uh, looked at the map of this race, I realized, number one, um, my my entire district was within the district. Other districts that I had worked in and advocated in throughout Western Brooklyn, uh, communities I had worked with over the years were also in this district. And I knew the issues. Um, I am an issue person. I've always been about the intersection of our neighborhoods and our communities um, and uh, working uh, within those communities uh, to uh, ensure that their voices are heard and that Congress was a new uh, a way for me to serve those communities and the additional communities in uh, lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And and why Congress instead of the assembly? What it, What is it that uh, appeals to you about being able to potentially represent these communities at the federal level? Is there something that, um, you know, is drawing you, is, is pulling you other than uh, the, the trips to Washington, D.C. instead of Albany. What um, what what's drawn you uh, here interested in in Congress instead of the assembly? Well, so much of what we uh, the challenges on the ground for New Yorkers are often a result of federal policy, federal funding decisions, federal uh, uh, rights, uh, for example, um, and so uh, I'm in a district where both bridges, the Brooklyn and Manhattan Bridge, come into my district. I have a major interstate highway. Uh, those decisions and the funding of those decisions, uh, or the lack of funding of the infrastructure, are critical issues to the, the folks I represent and anybody who's in that Western Brooklyn corridor. Um, uh, the Gowanus Canal, the Superfund site, is in my district. That has been something that we worked on getting for, for many years. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that is, it's an EPA Superfund site. Mm -hmm. So the federal issues on the ground are very real. Housing is another major issue that affects my district as well as everybody's district. Uh, the the uh, uh, lack of support that the federal government has given to uh, public housing and other housing programs over the last several decades has really um, made so much of our housing unaffordable and untenable. So those are big issues uh, at the federal level that also affect all of us um, here in New York at the at the ground level. And because I have that experience in working with uh, uh, you know, communities, city, state, and the federal government. Uh, for me, this was a, a natural move to sort of connect those dots in a fundamentally different way than you can from a single assembly district. Gotcha. So um, 
we'll get into more of what you want to do if elected in, in a moment, but let's talk about your assembly tenure. Uh, you were elected in, in 2014, so you've been there several terms now. Um, what would you say are your top accomplishments in the New York State Assembly? Well, I would say a couple of things. Um, uh, number one, I'm very proud to have uh, been a part of the effort that really passed uh, codification of Roe versus Wade in the state legislature. Um, that was something that we heard all the time we didn't need to do because of, of uh, Roe and the Supreme Court would never overturn it. Uh, many of us knew that was not going to be the case. And so we fought very hard to ensure that we had those rights here in New York um, and all of the amplification of those rights and the ability to welcome people to New York um, uh, for that kind of care is something I'm very proud of, of having been a part of. Um, I've also passed uh, the red flag law in New York. Uh, we passed it uh, several times uh, in the assembly. I passed it twice before we had a democratic Senate and were able to get it passed in the Senate. Um, it is really the strongest such law in the country. Um, it is quite protective of uh, anybody's rights in, in, uh, under the second amendment, but it is also very specific about the criteria that need to be met um, and the evidence that needs to be um, uh, submitted to the court in order to get those guns away from people who shouldn't have them. Uh, and that protects New Yorkers. And I'm very excited about the way we are currently expanding and really uh, forcing, um, uh, mandating that law enforcement actually uh, uh, refer those cases to the court as opposed to making a decision based on what was perhaps a different standard under criminal law, which really doesn't apply. The red flag law is a civil procedure. So there's no criminality involved at the time that uh, that uh, uh, petition is made to the Supreme Court uh, and, and the evidence brought to the judge. Um, I've also uh, just passed this past year, passed a groundbreaking supported decision making so that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities have as much control over the decisions that affect their lives as possible. Um, but you know, a few years ago, I passed a bill that requires that school districts be able to use the words dyslexia, dyscalculia, and dysgraphia in and around the IEP process for uh, students with disabilities. And that is something that uh, school districts had been telling parents they were not allowed to do for about 40 years. We changed that um, and have really opened the, the door to more such uh, progressive changes with regard to addressing the needs of kids with reading disabilities, as well as just reading in general in New York. So I've been working very hard on those issues and um, I'm very proud of my work uh, to pass that seminal bill. Um, I closed the LLC loophole. Um, I've been, uh, I have a bill for zoonotic transfer of viruses, which sounds a little wonky, but you know, climate change, uh, deforestation, loss of habitat, that is encouraging all of these viruses to mutate and to jump from one species to the other. Uh, we need to be uh, doing what we can do here to ensure that that doesn't happen um, in our country. Um, uh, and, let me let me quickly yeah, jump in there. Just just explain yeah. that a little bit more. What would what would that do in New York? And and that's that's a that's a proposal, not not something that's passed. Uh, well, it's um, uh, passed in uh, uh, in the assembly, I believe. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, you know, it it hasn't uh, 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 taken off in the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so. Yeah, go ahead. It's a two house legislature. So it's a bill I'm working on. I mean, I've got a bill. Um, we're still working on that issue. But the more you hear about this latest variant, the more that is 
um, evidence that we need to start making decisions differently in terms of, you know, we have a lot of these rare species that are getting imported into the country illegally, or they're getting imported into the country and it's not yet illegal. Um, we want to make sure they're not coming into New York. We don't want to feed that crisis. Um, and as more states get on board with doing this kind of legislation, then it will bubble up and it become easier for, I think, uh, uh, passage at the federal level to really look at how climate is impacting our health beyond the ways that we all know about, which is, you know, uh, pulmonary disease and uh, asthma and, um, uh, you know, the, you know, the uh, uh, so many of the implications in, in the way our, our children's cognition is affected by the toxicity in our environment. We know about those things, but we're not paying as much attention to what we're doing to actually encourage um, uh, or allow uh, you know, new variants of various uh, viruses, you know, uh, COVID has been terrible and we have learned a lot about it, but we haven't learned as much as we should. Uh, but COVID isn't the last one that might come around and we need to be uh, uh, much more intentional about the work that we do in that area. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about the red flag law. You, you yeah. n- noted that you passed it previously um, and then recently after the, the massacre in Buffalo, it was uh, tightened up here. And uh, as you said, sort of uh, requiring law enforcement to file uh, in civil procedures. Um, there, there, there were clearly some challenges with implementation around the law. Just looking back at that and evaluating that, where do you see, you know, where do you see the gaps there? Is that something that once this was signed into law by then Governor Cuomo, there should have been more done to ensure uh, stronger implementation and and education in in localities and among, you know, the state police and local law enforcement? Was there something, uh, you know, that needed to be followed up on in terms of implementation there? uh, Yes, I think so. Um, You know, uh, Senator Kavanaugh carried the bill in the Senate. We were really trying to work with the administration on getting the various agencies that might be involved in in these circumstances uh, to work together uh, to ensure that there was better public education. Um, And just recently, before the shooting in Buffalo, in fact, I was talking with the governor's office and the speaker's office and some folks in the Senate about the need for a massive public education campaign so that people knew about their rights under under, uh, uh, the extremist protection order bill. And uh, because, in fact, it's not just mass shootings. I mean, we want to eliminate those. Uh, It's also other interpersonal violence and it's also suicide. So when you look at uh, some of the counties have really gotten behind implementing that. Uh, Suffolk County, for example, has been uh, the lead user of um, uh, the red flag laws protections uh, compared to other counties. And I think a lot of it has to do with if you have a member of your family who um, is saying the kinds of things that are warning signs for uh, gun violence, um, they may be purchasing weapons, they may be stockpiling ammunition. Most people don't know what to do. If you look at Parkland, for example, the mother went to the cops and said, my kid needs help. Can you talk him out of this? And he hadn't done anything wrong at that point. And the cops can't do that. Right. They might sit him down and have a conversation, but they have no authority. So um, and people don't want to get their family members in trouble with the law. So also they may be fearful themselves. So it is important that they know that they can go, for example, to law enforcement or they can talk to the school authorities. 
very often it is the school authorities that also get wind of the concerns of young people who may end up getting an illegal weapon, but when they're making threats of violence uh, of various kinds. So the schools are often in a position uh, to know this information. They too can file a petition with the uh, Supreme Court in, in every county uh, to seek um, uh, an extreme risk protection order. Um, and I think that the fact that law enforcement has filed most of these petitions goes to the fact that law enforcement may come into contact uh, with folks uh, earlier, but also they can be a great repository and a safety valve for those people who aren't quite sure how to do it themselves or are fearful of doing it themselves. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, the law enforcement should know how to do that. Um, the Office of Court Administration has a very, very um, uh, well-rounded um, uh, a page on how to file for an extreme risk protection order. It's very user-friendly. It is designed to be used by people who are not lawyers. Um, but they also, uh, I think that's a great way we need to, to make sure people know about that. But I'm also not unmindful of the fact that for some people, it may be a, a daunting process. And I think that that's where law enforcement can step in and have their attorneys file this civil um, uh, petition for um, an extremist protection order and get guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. The state legislature um, hold, holds a limited number of, of oversight hearings. Do you think there should have been more, more oversight from your legislature on the implementation of the red flag law or even just broader, you know, gun measures that have been signed in the last several years? Obviously, you know, when Democrats took control of the state Senate, uh, in 2019, and you had the Democratic majority of the year part of in the assembly, the Democratic governor, then Cuomo, um, and, and you then had full control of, of state government. There was a flood of, of legislation passed, uh, so many things that were uh, given attention and, and passage and, and new uh, budget allocations and a lot of different things. So there, there's always sort of a limited calendar for what gets chosen. But but would you would you looking back, would you say there should have been more oversight about the implementation of this and other gun regulations? You know, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, that sounds like uh, uh, an idea. I think that the the real issue in the initial stages of and remember, this was was effective in August of 2019. So it's not been it's not a, a law that's been around for a very, very long time mm -hmm. um, was uh, really focusing on getting the word out. And that's going to be uh, uh, really handled by, uh, uh, you know, uh, state entities and um uh, uh, you know, we differently in different in different counties throughout the state. So um, I think you could see, for example, in Suffolk County, Suffolk County really took it seriously um, and went about uh, educating people um, and uh, really uh, using uh, that uh, that process. So I think number one, there's always an issue with implementation and how much we uh, support that and in what way. Um, I, I think that. What we have seen also in some instances is once legislation is passed, um, that sometimes the administration doesn't follow through. And I, I, I go, for, for example, I can uh, cite to uh, part of the, um, uh, the, the New York SAFE Act and the fact that there was supposed to be a registry that uh, uh, for bullets 
right? So that people for bullets for handguns, uh, that you can only buy a bullet for a handgun you owned. That would help drive registration. About 5% of our, our uh, um, uh, firearms in New York State are actually registered. Um, and so then once you could buy uh, bullets for that. But in fact, once the bill was passed, um, the Republican conference really didn't want that uh, database um, to be developed. And so there was a memorandum of understanding uh, between uh, the governor and the uh, Republican leadership in the state Senate uh, to kind of not move forward with that. Um, governor Hochul has recently canceled that memorandum of understanding. Right. And we are focusing on on building out that database in a fundamentally different way than it was before. So sometimes it's the public's interest. Sometimes it's uh, the legislature, which doesn't administer laws, you know, doesn't implement laws ourselves. Um, and um, uh, the agencies may or may not be as uh, collaborative with the legislature as we would like in some cases. But also sometimes it's, you know, from the administration's uh, uh, actions as well. And and. Uh, that issue with the database has been um, a big one. It's one we've been concerned about for quite some time. I'm very glad that Governor Hochul um, has, uh, has has taken the lead on that. Let's talk about what you want to do in Congress if elected. What are some of the top priorities? Um, obviously, at this at this forum, we were we were both part of uh, that occurred the night before we're speaking here. We're talking again on Tuesday, July twelfth, twenty twenty two. Here, uh, hosted by a number of Brooklyn Democratic clubs. Um, we were discussing, you know, things related to voting rights and uh, protecting uh, women's reproductive rights, climate, uh, a variety of the, the very high profile issues, of course, that especially given recent Supreme Court rulings are uh, particularly top of mind for many voters, especially Democratic voters. Um, but what do you want to highlight for, for people listening here in terms of your top priorities of elected to Congress? Are there specific uh, you know, bills that you just want to become part of, uh, hopefully, uh, in your mind, a majority uh, in the House that helps uh, push through? Are there uh, specific under the radar uh, pieces of legislation that you'd want to highlight for people or things you would uh, look to introduce that don't exist already? What do you want to highlight for folks in terms of your top priorities uh, if you're the head to the House? I think number one, uh, I, I think what needs to be uh, top of mind for everybody is climate. Um, uh, I certainly support the Green New Deal um, and uh, those efforts to uh, build into Build Back Better uh, and the infrastructure uh, plan uh, to fund what it is we need to fund to achieve um, uh, a healthy and safe environment. We have a long way to go in doing that. And there are, without a doubt, there will be other uh, bills uh, that can be brought to the fore and other uh, uh, you know, appropriations that we can advocate for uh, to effectuate that. Um, and, you know, climate goes to issues like our housing, right? The federal government has not supported um, public housing um, and other uh, innovative programs. And so, for example, uh, we need to keep fighting for that uh, $40 billion that will help make NYCHA um, livable again um, and, and moving forward with additional uh, federal programs. Right now, they have Section 202 housing, for example, that really prioritizes um, uh, uh, low-income uh, communities, as well as people who are who are seniors uh, and people with disabilities. Uh, so, you know, we need to strengthen the the uh, laws that we have, um, and also uh, fund those things in a much more um, uh, constructive way, because climate is affecting all of us in all of our the areas of life. And so, I think we have to really sort of look at that as kind of part of the linchpin 
to to uh, uh, the way that our people live our lives, right? So all of the flooding, all of the uh, the fires out west, all of this is really about climate change and the failure of the federal government um, to have uh, pursued that. And that is often, as you know, uh, something that um, has been a very divisive issue uh, politically. And I point to the recent decision in West Virginia versus the EPA, where um, uh, you know I don't know who is supposed to guard against uh, greenhouse uh, uh, gas emissions than the EPA. I mean, it is only in their name, Environmental Protection Agency, and the environment is very much impacted by greenhouse gases. So we are going to have to, I believe, uh, 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 codify what it is we need to do um, that the Supreme Court has said that the EPA didn't have the authority to do. So that's one approach. I think we need to really deal with this issue of, of access to abortion and pass the Women's Health uh, uh, Protection Act. Um, and also ensure that we look at other ways that we can um, protect people who are seeking care. Very pleased that the, the president has come out and said that uh, federal uh, facilities are, you know, that the states cannot just allow women to die. When the, the life of the, the mother is at stake, that um, uh, the Supreme Court's ruling doesn't apply. I think we can also do a lot at the executive level. We can talk about the use of, of our Native American uh, lands. We can talk about the use of, now there's a doctor in California who wants to uh, do abortions on uh, boats, right? That you can have a medical ship and provide that care. It's being done in other countries. I think that's a great way of kind of evading uh, the issues of uh, certain states that have uh, really uh, banned uh, or all but banned uh, abortion rights. So we need to be creative. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, working with people on coming up with solutions for these issues. And I think if we just codify um, uh, Roe versus Wade and, and uh, expand that and uh, in the Women's Health Protection Act, but that will make a big difference because the legislature, which is Congress, has a right to pass federal laws. And the Supreme Court can't overrule a federal law um, that is uh, constitutionally passed. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, the uh, the politics of Washington are, are obviously uh, very fluid right now. There's the question of whether uh, if you're elected to Congress, uh, it's all but certain that a Democrat will be representing this new district. Of course, it's some of the highest uh, Democratic enrollment areas of, of the state. Um, but the question of balance of power in the House, in the Senate, these are up for grabs in the general election that will be coming this fall. Um, but let's just say in the current landscape that that something close to it remains. That's not a given by any means, but that Democrats continue to have uh, a slim majority in the House and a, and a tie breaking, you know, vice presidential majority in the um, in the U.S. Senate. What do you, what do you make of those dynamics? Because there's people who obviously think uh, and you get some of this in Albany, too, that the far left of the Democratic Party uh, is pulling the party a little bit too far to the left, at least a little bit. And, and people saying that that's turning off a lot of moderate voters and, and you have uh, Latino voters and Asian voters in, in some significant numbers moving towards the Republican Party on some issues. Um, but then you have, of course, the a couple of the more moderate to conservative U.S. senators who, um, you know, have been holding up 
certain priorities of the president and, and Democrats. What do you make uh, of that landscape? And what do you see, uh, again, just assuming the sort of current landscape, which which will obviously change by next year, but w- what do you make of that landscape and the path forward for Democrats with these narrow majorities and how to get to um, you know agreement on some big ticket things to to deliver for, for Democratic voters and the, and the public? You know, one thing um, I think that is is true is when you're in a legislature, um, just because you think you're right doesn't mean uh, it, it it sells well. <laughs> um, but I would say, you know, the right uh, has a very effective echo chamber. And I see I think that you see that with uh, the migration of uh, recent immigrants, particularly Asian immigrants, um, are often very conservative uh, and their their notion of socialism is is uh, China, (laughs) Uh, which is, in my mind, more fascist than socialist. So I think some of the language we use is misunderstood by by certain groups of people, um, number one. Uh, And the other thing I think is that, you know, the Democrats have been a big tent and we have always had uh, these internal conversations. Um, And we are much more likely to have those internal conversations more publicly. Uh, That is something that the Republican Party doesn't do. Right. Um, But they would talk amongst themselves. But when, you know, as Hillary Clinton once said years ago, you know, the Democrats need to fall in love, but the Republicans fall in line. And I think what we need to do is really respect and honor everybody's views in the Democratic Party. Um, We need to listen to each other. And I think we have so much more in common than not. So, you know, I think a lot of what it is that uh, kind of makes it seem like the left is too left, et cetera, is often some of the media coverage. And it's also led by the um, Republican uh, you know, echo chamber, right? Um, the reality is that there are many things that they just deliberately misconstrue and miscommunicate about that aren't real. And we need to be better at combating that. We need to be better at saying, no, that is not the facts. The facts and the data and the science show X. They do not show Y. And so you saw that with um, uh, uh, the uh, one of the uh, referendums last year um, on uh, no fault absentee voting, which we have fought for for years so that people don't have to be sick or out of town uh, uh, to vote by absentee ballot. You know, mail-in voting was something that all of the red states had and most uh, Republicans, some states, it's all by mail-in ballots, right? But they've demonized that. And so they went around um, and started campaigning that this would allow for illegal aliens, quote unquote, I'm using their language, uh, to vote. It absolutely did had nothing to do with that whatsoever. But the Democrats were caught flat-footed. They didn't properly educate. They didn't realize early enough that there would be this campaign to misconstrue and, and misrepresent uh, what this would do. Um, um, and but we're not taking that lying down and we're moving forward on doing it again. Mm-hmm. All right. We're in our last few minutes here with uh, State Assemblymember Joanne Simon, who represents the 52nd Assembly District in Brooklyn, which uh, covers a significant uh, stretch of the new 10th Congressional District. And she's running in that Democratic primary, which is happening in August. Um, speaking of the sort of politics of the race, you, you represent this assembly district that's within the new congressional district. It is a very high turnout district. Uh, It delivered you. You ran for Brooklyn Borough president last year. It delivered you a very strong uh, showing in that in that race. Um, This is an even more crowded field here in the congressional primary. 
what's the what's the sort of path to victory? You know, how much do you need your assembly district to really come through for you uh, in this race? And um, how do you sort of see where your other stronger areas of support might come from? Uh, how are you branching out into into Manhattan in this race? You know, just a, just a, a few thoughts on the sort of politics and your path to victory here. What do you what do you make of it? Well, I think that, um, yes, you know, uh, the 52nd AD, um, I have been the top vote getter in the state for the last three terms. Uh, So the the AD 52 does vote. Um, You know, in last year's race, I won the 44th as well. Um, And there's a lot of commonality in those communities. And here's where my community experience uh, really matters, is that people know me, not just the people in my district, because I was leading on those issues of street safety early on. Uh, on uh, uh, you know environmental justice early on, on um, uh, working uh, with communities uh, on those issues that we share in common, whether they were in what is now the 52nd Assembly District or not, um, because I worked with with communities throughout Western Brooklyn and in and around uh, downtown Brooklyn, which is also another assembly district part of it. Uh, Fort Greene and Clinton Hill have traditionally been a different assembly district. So, but folks know me. Um, and they know my work. Um, I have been uh, I have been like them in, in the trenches. I've been that person in the auditorium looking to get my voice heard uh, with officialdom, uh, whether it's an agency or elected officials. Um, and so I know what people's concerns are. And I am always there listening and working with people. I'm a very accessible. I have these Java with Joannes all the time. People know they can come to me. People who come to my Java with Joannes are often people from outside my assembly district because they have questions about something that, um, you know, affects their district that also affects mine. Um, and, uh, and, and similarly, when I've been out campaigning, people have said, I'm not in your district, but you and your staff helped me with my unemployment benefits last year when nobody else would. So that to me is meaningful. And I think that people respond to that experience. But I also think, for example, that um, folks in Manhattan have very, very similar uh, concerns, right? Resiliency is a big issue. Housing is a big issue. Um, Development and the development of enough affordable housing and the displacement of people. Whenever there's a big project being done, people are inevitably displaced. How do we counter that? How do we ensure that people are not pushed out of the neighborhoods that they built their lives and their homes and raised their families in? Um, That young people can afford to live in the communities that they were raised in. That is something that we need to work together on. These are are thorny issues. Um, And when you've been working with people consistently over the years, people hear that message. I believe, for example, that is one of the reasons why I was just endorsed by um, the Downtown Independent Democrats, which is the largest Democratic club in lower Manhattan and in Manhattan, as far as that goes, Um, because what I'm talking about resonates with them and their lives. And that's what they want, someone who will fight and someone who will listen to them and work with them and be able to read between the lines on so many of these proposals. There are a lot of things that sound like good deals, but you really have to look at them to see if they're all they cracked up to be. And if they're not, then you need to find effective ways to ensure that um, that project becomes more responsive um, and doesn't end up doing damage uh, that uh, uh, none of us really want. So I think that I have a... um, uh, 
a message that is resonating with people in both boroughs. And, you know, that is my path to victory. I also think, right. you know, this district, which has never been, we've never had an August primary before. Right. Um, and uh, we've had September. So it's been a lot of summer campaigning, certainly in the past, but never in, in August. And so it's going to be a, an issue where people who are those primary voters, those people who are most deeply engaged, um, those people like my, the constituents in my district that come out and vote rain or shine, uh, they will come out and vote in primaries. Though that data shows that, uh, you know, the, the double prime votes, and it could be triple primes in this race, mm -hmm. we don't know, 30% of them come out of my district and 60% of them are women. So the, the, the demographics and the turnout numbers also are, are, are key to my path to victory. Yeah, you're uh, in this crowded race, your assembly district coming in big for you could be uh, could be almost all you need. Um, all right. I just want to get to a few other things here. Um, this is sort of a, a rapid fire. Let's call it a, a you know lightning round type of thing. Just a few quick questions, short answers, if you don't mind. Um, I hate those things. You I know, know policy you, walk, I know, you know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, you are keeping open the possibility of, of appearing in the uh, general election for your assembly seat. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I'm on the ballot, as you know, yes. um, and so I'm on the ballot. If I am successful in the congressional primary, then the lawyers will figure that out. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the governor would call a special election to fill the uh, the seat. Right. Um, the uh, the I mentioned in the introduction, Representative Mondaire Jones moved to the mm -hmm. district just a few weeks ago. You've been in the district, as you've noted, since the early 80s. You've been in the assembly for seven, eight uh, years now. What do you make briefly of, of him moving into this district to run? Uh, do you think that's fair game or do you do you have, you know, does that sort of uh, make you bristle at all? You know, it's unusual. Um, I think that um, you see that in some of the, uh, the questions that people are asking. But, um, you know, he's going to run his race. He's going to have to bring, um, uh, uh, you know, his experience uh, to bear um, and convince the voters of the 10th Congressional District um, that they should be voting for him. I'm in the meantime, I'm focusing on my race. Mm -hmm. And Mayor Bill de Blasio, the former mayor, uh, is in the race as well. Obviously, he has uh, uh, much deeper roots in the district than than Mondaire Jones. Uh, uh, briefly, how do you capture his your assessment of his record as mayor? Uh, is it is there a way that, uh, you know, if you're asked about it, your your sort of um, clear answer to people on the street? Uh, what, what, what do you make of his record in eight years as, as mayor of New York City? Well, I would say it was mixed. He's done some some excellent things, but uh, it's been mixed in other ways. I think um, uh, that uh, he would say that himself. Um, I think his communications um, and his uh, speed of decision making has been problematic in a lot of people's minds um, and frustrating, if nothing else. Um, you know, I have been uh, uh, personally. Uh, uh, less happy with the way this the city has stepped up and uh, taken responsibility for uh, the work it needs to do in the Gowanus uh, Canal area because it's a responsible party and has significant obligations uh, under the federal remedy that, in my mind, they have uh, dragged their feet on for uh, way too long. Um, uh, but you know, again, you know, the mayor, the former mayor, will make his 
uh, mm -hmm. commitments um, and he will campaign. He's, you know, he's uh, he has the benefit of 100 percent name recognition. Mm -hmm. I think that my community roots um, uh, are different than his. Um, as you know, I didn't come out of politics. He did. And um, I am uh, making my case. Uh, to the people, you know, on the ground who are going to be in those voting booths. Um, and I'm, I'm confident that uh, I can compete. Last couple, and, and these could each be a half hour discussion, but, you know, uh, uh, just for, for the sake of the record here, do you think it's time for the Rikers Island jails to be under a full federal receivership? Uh, just just yes or no is fine, and, and we can discuss further at another time. But, um, you know, there's obviously a monitor and there's questions about whether there should be a receivership. Mayor Adams has argued against it, and they they've gotten a bit of a reprieve from the courts. But um, do you think it's time for a receivership for Rikers? Um, I do think it's time. Um, uh, you know, obviously, I think the court is uh, has given them a, the the administration a little more time, but I think it's it's moving in that direction. And uh, lastly, here the. You, you mentioned public housing earlier. We discussed it a bit at the at that forum last night. Um, but short of short of tens of billions of dollars coming from the federal government for NYCHA, and I understand you and, and any of your competitors here in this race would be fighting for that in Congress. And, it, it, you know, it, mm -hmm. it could come. But but separate from that, short of that. Is there a NYCHA rescue strategy that you're particularly supportive of other than tens of billions of dollars coming from the federal government. There's the new NYCHA Preservation Trust that you and your colleagues just passed and the governor signed into law. So that will help raise some money. But beyond that, do you support uh, some affordable housing infill development in NYCHA? Do you support uh, a lot more sales of, of air rights? Do you support the rental administration uh, demonstration program? Are, are there any NYCHA related strategies, uh, any one in particular that you you support? Um, you know, each of these ideas ha have um, uh, issues that I think need to be further developed. So it's very hard to uh, to say in a, a quick answer situation. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we I, I do not believe we need to be privatizing uh, public housing. Uh, the NYCHA Preservation Trust, in fact, is still. Uh, uh, public ownership. I think there's some misunderstanding about that among uh, tenants and certainly their lack of trust in NYCHA is well-deserved. Um, and, uh, but I do think that, you know, we uh, were able to um, come out with a, an approach uh, that gave a lot of uh, autonomy to the residents of, of NYCHA housing um, and preserves the uh, uh, public ownership of uh, of NYCHA. You know, infill housing, you know, that's been proposed. It's been proposed in one of the uh, public housing developments in my district. Um, uh, it hasn't happened. I think that's a good thing. Uh, part of the problem is, you know, if you look at the way NYCHA developments are built, uh, there is a sort of a theme in the urban design of that, which um, also means that it's much harder to actually do viable infill infill uh, developments um, from a position of light and air and open space. Um, and so I think that it's a like a seems to me one of those ideas that looks good on paper, uh, but not very much in the implementation and, and the doing of it. And it has really not been uh, uh, it's not happened and it, it, for a large 
uh, uh, portion. It's been very little of that that's actually occurred. Um, so uh, sales of air rights, again, that goes to um, uh, who's going to buy those air rights. You know, if it's a, a big developer that is not going to consult with community in a real way on the ground, um, I think that's a problem. Uh, so, uh, you know, we need to look really at what it is we mean by these things um, and how they could um, uh, come back to uh, end up uh, uh, furthering displacement, for example, and the unaffordability of neighborhoods. Um, I think we don't look at that seriously enough in the beginning uh, when we're first talking about these ideas, and we need to do that much more. All right. Well, uh, you weren't you weren't in a rush, so I wasn't going to rush you there to, to give answers on on meaty topics here. We've covered a lot. Uh, there's still plenty more to get to down the line. But Joanne Simon, uh, Assembly Member, and running for the Democratic primary nomination in the new 10th Congressional District. Thank you for the time and uh, and be well. Thank you so much, Ben. Nice to speak to you again. Bye-bye. Thank you, you too.